Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. I'm Artemis, and in today's episode, we're looking for trouble with a trailblazing female war correspondent. Flinging off her heels under shellfire in Civil War Spain, taking tea with Hitler after a Nuremberg rally, gossiping with Churchill by his goldfish pond, pioneering 1930s war correspondent Virginia Coles did all these things. This week, we're having a travels through time first. Joining us today to discuss Coles' astonishing life, we have not one but two expert guests. The first is the critically acclaimed author and critic, Judith McCrell, whose most recent book, Going With The Boys, follows six women journalists, including Coles, who reported on the Second World War. Our second guest is the multi-award winning journalist and chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times, Christina Lamb. Christina is the author of nine books. Her most recent, Our Bodies, Their Battlefields, What War Does to Women, is an account of sexual violence in modern conflict. Over the last few months, many of you might have followed Christina's reports from Afghanistan, but in between all of this, she has also written the foreword to Virginia Coles' memoir, Looking for Trouble, which has just been reissued. I spoke to Judith and Christina about one year in Virginia Coles' remarkable career just last week. Christina Lamb and Judith Mackerel, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. I'm really excited because it's the first time ever on the podcast we've had two guests. So maximum expertise, maximum discussion. I think it's going to make for a really interesting episode. I wanted to start by talking a bit about the woman herself, Virginia Coles. She's clearly a very, very charismatic figure she's very charming Judith your book uh, it looks at six women who reported during the second world war but you actually open your introduction with Virginia why did you choose to open with Virginia well there she is in uh, Nazi Berlin um, two days before war breaks out every other journalist has left town every other British journalist or British-based journalist has left town and she's there just determined as always to get the last word on us story and to create for her readers a picture of what the scenario is. Um, She's brilliant at talking to people, she's brilliant at uh, describing events and the fact that yes she had she had gone into Berlin when everybody else had fled, the fact that she was fearless, sufficiently fearless to enter into what could well have become enemy territory within a day or two absolutely typified for me the spirit of my six women journalists who just put themselves out there and basically went where everybody else was fleeing pretty much. Absolutely. Could you tell us a bit about what Virginia was like? What did she look like? What was her background maybe? I mean she she came from a very old Boston family and she came from a lot of old money but her mother actually had very little of this money. She'd um, divorced to Virginia's father when Virginia was about five and the family had lived in quite a degree of penury actually. Um, Virginia and her sister were sent to a boarding school so that her mother could work and they were charity pupils which meant that they had to do kitchen chores to supplement their fees. 
So I think people looked at her, this rather beautiful patrician looking woman uh, who always dressed meticulously once she was earning her own money uh, and, and assumed from her voice, from her demeanor that she was rather an entitled kind of socialite. And when she first appeared in Spain uh, to cover the Spanish Civil War in 37, uh, people thought, who is this woman? She was wearing this kind of elegant wool dress, a little fur jacket, high-heeled shoes. Uh, Martha Gellhorn, who was there, got there just before, looked at Virginia completely askance. Said, you know, is this a tea party you think you've come to? And, and she became famous, in fact, for tramping around war zones <laughs> in these high-heeled suede shoes of hers. Uh, but Beneath this sort of very charming, glamorous appearance, she was uh, as ambitious and as courageous as any other war correspondent. Mm. But she was hugely charming and very, very, very good fun. So she, I think, often got to stories that uh, male journalists couldn't get to by very much playing on her beauty and on her charm but I think we'll come back to that because there are some fantastic episodes of Virginia wangling her way into (laughs) wangling her way into stories. Absolutely um yeah I was really astounded to to read that she before she arrived in Spain to report on the Spanish Civil War she had not done any foreign correspondency before and I wanted to ask Christina how could you put that in perspective for us? I mean, how in a in a career or in a job like yours, being a foreign correspondent, how easy is that to literally kind of learn on the job to be dropped into a situation like the Civil War and report on it? Yeah, I mean, she herself says I, I had no qualifications as a war correspondent except curiosity. Um, and actually, that is pretty much the most important uh, thing that you need. Um, when I started out, actually, I had no idea what foreign correspondents did or what they needed. I must admit, I didn't turn up in high heels. I started out covering the uh, war in Afghanistan when the Russians were there in the late 80s. But I really didn't have a clue what you needed as a foreign correspondent or what you should do. Um, And I think there's something to be said for that sometimes, because if you go in without any ideas or preconceptions, you just go and talk to people and really do report what you see. And in fact, you know, she went there. um, And as Judith says, you know, people like Hemingway, who was holding court in the Hotel Florida, was sort of making fun of her in her furs and high heels. But actually, she was one of the only journalists that covered that war from both sides. Mm. So, uh, you know, she clearly did have a lot going for her. Mm. We've spoken a bit about how the fact that she was a woman and allowed her to report on stories in slightly different ways or get to different stories. And I know we'll touch on that a bit more um, later on in the interview as well. But could we kind of talk a bit about being a female journalist at this time, how common was that? How common was it to have um, women sent off to report on in, in uh, conflict zones and, and things like that? Uh, it was really fascinating for me reading about it because so I started out 33 years ago, there weren't that many female war correspondents then. And so we used to think we had a tough time kind of dealing with 
misogynistic editors and um, people on the ground who didn't want us to have access, but it was nothing compared to the women then. I mean, they were literally banned from the front lines. They were having to, you know, hitchhike their way in. And Judith writes about this really evocatively in, in her book but you know reading what she wrote I thought goodness you know how there's no way we can complain compared to to them but in a way the fact that things were made difficult for them meant that they had to come at things through a different way um, I've always thought that women report war very differently to men I think that uh, even today, my male colleagues are much more interested in what I would call the bang bang in the fighting. I hate all that. <laughs> um, I'm much more interested in the people trying to live during a war because, you know, all these wars that have been going on in recent times for years, look at Syria, 11 years, Afghanistan until recently, 40 years. Of course, life doesn't stop. People are still getting married, going to school, getting jobs. Um, and yet they're doing all of that with all hell going, uh, breaking loose around them. Um, how do you do that? And the people that are organizing that are almost always the women. So I've always been much more interested in, in talking to that. I feel very strongly that there should be statues to, to women during war, not just the men that were fighting. And also, of course, there's a dark side, which is the brutality against women and rape in particular, which is something I've written about a lot. And I do find it quite interesting, and maybe Judith can shed light on this, but that these women during the Second World War, they must have surely come across some of this, but I don't find them reporting on that side. They report about women living during the war and all of that, but not the actual brutality in terms of sexual violence against them. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a wonderful memoir actually by a British journalist called Iris Carpenter that she wrote after the war, 1946. And she does touch on rape as a, as a weapon of war and also her utter disgust and unhappiness when she discovers that it's not just Germans and Russians raping, but also her beloved American GIs. There's a little bit in uh, Lee Miller's accounts, or rather those who wrote about her, of the fact that uh, she just escaped being raped uh, when she was traveling actually through Eastern Europe and the Balkans just after the war. And Martha Gellhorn reports uh, an incident where she was groped by an Italian general in Spain. I think two things were going on. Firstly, um, my women were writing about the Second World War. There was quite a lot of both self-censorship self and official censorship on what they could write. And public morale was, was, was such an issue that so much that was negative in the Allied conduct of the war could not be written about easily, nor was it just political. I think it was also a perception then that public sensibilities were too delicate for some of the more harrowing details of war. But I think it's pretty much the case that although I can't believe my women weren't subject to some kinds of sexual harassment, you know, and as I said, Martha Gellhorn does admit to it, 
I don't think any of them were raped. I think but they, I was meaning more that they must have come across there was a lot of rape during the, the Spanish yeah. war that they yeah. must have come across a lot of women that they were raped that yeah. were raped and yet why didn't they write about it yeah well as I said I don't think their publications would have accepted it at the time you know and it's interesting this memoir by Iris Carpenter is written when wartime censorship has been lifted mm. I mean, and it's interesting that Russian, the Russian women who were embedded within the Red Army also wrote about rape after the war. Whether they literally didn't see it, whether they didn't want to see it. Uh, I think Martha in Spain was so passionately pro-Republican that she couldn't actually bear to write anything that presented the Republicans in a less than perfect light, actually. But yeah, it, 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 it is an interesting thing because I would have, I looked for it, is all I can say, Christina. I, you know, I, I was expecting to find more and I was surprised that I didn't. Mm. So I can only really speculate beyond the issue of censorship and self-censorship. I can only speculate why it was not raised, if not then, then later. Mm. I think you're right. You know, they're, they're, they're writing for a, a different kind of sensibilities as well. And I mean, what they were writing, I find uncomfortable was often kind of referred to as sort of human interest stories, as if it wasn't mm. by, by their male editors, as if mm. it wasn't something quite as important as uh, the, the other things that people, that the men were doing. Mm. Well, I think without further ado, we should join Virginia in the year that you'd like to visit and we can see her in full flow uh, in this incredibly tense environment. So, Christina, would you like to tell us what year you and Judith uh, would like to visit? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because she there were so many wonderful vignettes from different years, but we chose 1938, which was a year, of course, very important for the whole of Europe uh, also I mean first of all she did go back to Spain uh, that year and I was amused that the Evening Standard actually ran an article announcing woman goes back to the war written by Randolph Churchill um, about her actually going and reporting and it was also the year that she joined the Sunday Times as a sort of permanent roving correspondent um, but of course, the main thing that was going on in the world was the run up to, to the Second World War. And uh, one of the, the things that I find so fascinating about Virginia is, I mean, there are lots of things. She's a, wonderful the way that she describes things. Her, her writing is just astonishing, I think. Um, and I should say, too, that actually I... I have to admit, I'd never heard of her until I met her daughter at an event um, a few years ago. And she said to me, oh, my mom used to work for the Sunday Times. And, and then she sent me this book, Looking for Trouble, that her mother had written. And I just was blown away by it when I read uh, the book. And so in, in that book, uh, she talks about how in 1938 she goes to Berlin for the first time. One of the sort of key things for being a foreign correspondent, well, first of all, we spend our time going to places that normal people are leaving, and she did that a lot. 
but also its luck of being in the right place at the right time is a really key thing. And also sort of knowing the right people. And she just had this astonishing ability to um, run into or, or meet the key people all the time anywhere she went. Um, you know, she goes to Italy and has dinner with somebody who says, would you like to meet Mussolini? And, um, and so of course in Berlin, she gets invited to tea with Hitler and at that tea, Unity Mitford, um, who was then, I think, about 24, was really the main object of, of Hitler's attention. And so Virginia writes about, you know, the fascination of watching this man that everybody was waiting to see what he was going to do, just appearing to be mostly interested in impressing this upper class 24 year old English girl and then she talks to unity after the um the tea and, and asks her about hitler because they had this unlikely friendship and and unity tells her all sorts of things like how hitler is a really good mimic that he could be you know do, doing cabaret if he wasn't the fuhrer um that it, there was no way he was going to go to war because he wouldn't like all his nice new buildings to be bombed. So it's this just most kind of bizarre conversation um, about this key person um, in, in that year. So I think it, for me, really sort of sums up everything about Virginia, of the ability of being in the right place at the right time, meeting the right person, but also coming across these most unlikely scenes. I mean, it's, it's a particularly extraordinary moment because she starts off in Berlin and then she's down in Nuremberg for, I think it's the 10th big rally. And it, it's a real uh, example of how vivid her writing is that when she sets the scene of Nuremberg, she talks about every, all the Germans flocking into Nuremberg for the rally and uh, how the streets are throbbing with the tramp of enthusiastic German feet and there's pennants, Nazi swastikas flying from every building. And she's, she describes it, I think, as, as almost as if like a, a medieval pageant a kind of, and the whole lust for war that the Nazis managed to whip up in the population is, is brilliantly expressed with all these details. And also her good fortune in being invited to tea with Hitler is set against how um, most of the foreign correspondents are being treated, that Hitler's allies, the journalists from Hitler's allies, um, like Italy or uh, Japan, are all being housed in the city's best hotels, whereas <laughs> the, the journalists from his least favorite countries are being, have been put up in railway carriages parked in a siding outside the city. So Virginia's luck in getting invited to this big tea, I think it's about 70 people in all, um, is, is immense. As Christina says, you know, how, how come <laughs> she's allowed, you know, she's just a roving correspondent. And, um, and yes, this, this account with, with uh, Unity who kind of babbles on, I mean, she's, she seems to have very little understanding of world events unity and, and Virginia gets more and more dumbfounded, you know, first when she's going on about how Hitler loves gossip and, you know, and he's so excited to have the world trembling before him. 
And then I think finally Unity says something like, he likes the idea of going to war because he doesn't like to be bored. <laughs> and Virginia writes, you know, the idea that this man who's got the whole world trembling, unable to sleep at night, you know, is might take them all to war just because of a passing ennui. <laughs> and it, so, I mean, she's, she's extraordinary, Virginia, because although she cares deeply about uh, individuals who suffer during the war, and there's an extraordinary account later on in 1940 of how she joins the um, exodus of refugees outside Paris, you know, she makes you, she really tugs on your heartstrings when she's describing these people. But she also has such a kind of abiding sense of humor. So, you know, even these kind of harrowing moments in history, she's always picking out some kind of irony, some hilarity. And it it's makes- a hilarious scene as well in Berlin after, um, meeting Unity of, of Unity's parents in their grand hotel where the mother is knitting and drops her knitting needle and so her father is crawling along the floor in this grand hotel trying to get the knitting needle as all these sort of stormtroopers <laughs> are marching through the hotel. Yeah, yeah yes. I mean it, it's that it's that about ability to make you feel I mean as you were saying Christina life goes on always in these situations and it goes on you know at every level yeah so even if you're posh Mitfords you know your, your knitting is still, <laughs> is still of paramount importance at that point yeah so th this um this tea party in, in Nuremberg and the rally that is the first scene that um we're, that we're visiting in 1938 and I would really love to kind of delve a bit deeper into what was going on here I mean like you say I this the kind of, there's a certain absurdity or surrealness to this particular moment that I almost I wanted to ask you whether you felt that um, either um, uh, Christina or Judith whether you feel that I kind of got the impression that she was almost writing about it with this slight slightly tongue-in-cheek way slightly kind of looking finding the absurdity in it finding the slight uh, irony in it as a way of making this person who seems so frightening just that little bit smaller and that he, he rather than the Fuhrer this truly horrifying spectre you know that everyone in Europe is watching and waiting to see he's also just a kind of man who's trying to impress a woman and that's a bit pathetic in its own way and it was a way of slightly bringing him him down would you say that's an accurate reading of what she was what she was trying to achieve? I think so because also I can't remember the exact word she used but when she describes seeing him that she talks of him as you know how ordinary he looked for somebody that was causing so much fear everywhere but i but then when she describes seeing him deliver his opening speech at nuremberg she captures terrifyingly just how this yeah this drab little figure suddenly becomes like this super figure superman mm -hmm. who holds the lightning in his hands she says and 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 i think she, in a way that's politically very astute as well, because up until quite close to the outbreak of war, there were a lot of people in Britain and around the world who were willing or wanting to, to look at Hitler as a, as a kind of something foolish, something idiotic, you know, with his funny little moustache, you know, Johnny Foreigner. And according to Virginia, I think one of her sources, he quite liked to play that image of himself up in order then to have the satisfaction of 
then kind of unleashing the full power of what he was capable of. Uh, mm. So I think it, it, I think at that stage it was a really interesting double perspective of Hitler, both yeah as a as a, as a figure of ridicule and as a figure of terror. Mm. And um, I wanted to ask Christina, you could kind of give us a sense of what it is like. I know that um, in our in our second scene that we're going to visit, we're going to visit a country that's very apprehensive. It's kind of waiting for another country to make for Germany to make a move. But here she's in the home of the aggressor, as it were. And what is it like reporting from a country on the brink of war, this fevered atmosphere that she writes about so evocatively? Could you could you give us some perspective about what it's like doing that? I mean, most, I'm trying to think, most of the wars that I've covered, Iraq waiting to, in 2003, when we knew that uh, they were, the shock and awe campaign was, about to start and so you know there is this sort of um sense of trepidation of no idea what's coming um and and in a way once it actually starts it's almost a relief because you know then you're you're in it and trying to you know, get on with life or or surviving but the sort of that sense things often feel worse of course always before um, they actually happen that atmosphere it seems to really characterize this year it's why it's such an interesting year to go back to there's this enormous sense of apprehension anticipation and there's you know some people like Virginia are saying I can't believe that we're not doing anything about this that you know that England isn't mobilizing that we're not rearming and then there are people who are kind of slightly sticking their heads in the sand or or interpreting things to be not as bad as they as they um, do end up being so there's this enormous it's it's incredibly kind of tense atmosphere all across Europe isn't it and she manages to capture that so um, so well um, I just wanted to talk a bit about um, Unity Mitford as well, just because she's such a fascinating character. It feels a shame to like move on from her too quickly. Um, Judith, could you tell us a bit about Unity Mitford and, and how she came to be uh, such close, um, <laughs> close friends with Hitler? She'd seen him speak at uh, the first Nuremberg rally, I think in 1933, just after he'd come to power. And um, like a lot of the British aristocracy, she was hugely impressed. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's well known now that uh, for many years, people spoke of Hitler as, as you know, the great white hope of, of Europe, that you know, he'd brought his country back from the brink of economic collapse and revolution. You know, like Mussolini, he got the trains running on time. He, he was rebuilding industry. And I think in an era where Britain lacked powerful political leaders as well, the, I, the, the, the vision of this man who could so theatrically present himself in these great stadiums and uh, hold an audience absolutely captive with his rhetoric, people were, people were dazzled. People were dazzled by him. And unity, uh, however, not only simply typified many of her family and her class in being dazzled by Hitler, but you know, she fell in love with him. It became an absolute obsession. And when Britain and Germany finally went to war, she tried to kill herself. It was too unbearable mm -hmm. uh, that you know, this, this love affair with this man and this country should be so brutally brought to an end. 
and they sort of suited each other very well. You know, he, she was a great audience for him. He, he, as we know, was very impressed by aspects of the English, the, you know, the empire, the upper class. And he, he, he was quite keen to ingratiate himself with unity as a representative of that class. And that leads us on quite nicely to the second scene that we're going to travel to in 1938. Um, Christina, would you like to tell us where we are? Yes, yeah, so, well, I, I mean, at the end of that speech in, in the rallies, Hitler ends by basically threatening uh, Czechoslovakia and the uh, Sudetenland, the uh, area near the border uh, that he would um, want to to take it back <laughs> and because of that she goes from Berlin to to Czechoslovakia to see how people there are feeling about the idea that the uh, Nazis may be just about to invade. And what does she find when she gets to Prague Judith? Could you paint a picture for us of the uh, atmosphere yeah. in Prague? It's chaotic and it's panic-stricken. They're, they're digging trenches in the street, they're issuing gas masks, they are putting up conscription notices and it's, it's, it's all the more harrowing because of course Czechoslovakia has just been through the same thing in May when Hitler first started making threats on the Sudetenland, which Czechoslovakians knew was not just going to be Sudetenland, but would involve the entire country. And at that point in May, Hitler had realized that there was international opinion was too much stacked against him and he'd withdrawn, but uh, it had left Czechoslovakia very, very shaken because they'd also realized the extent to which its allies its friends, Britain and France, were not supporting them. Um, so when Hitler starts repeating those threats and, and when the threat against Sudetenland is, is ramped up, they are not only terrified, but they're like, we're here again. You know, this was only three months ago that we thought this was settled. And towards the end of that period, uh, Virginia goes back to London actually to get some warm clothes because she thinks war might indeed happen and she sees actually in Britain the first real signs that Britain is preparing for war so it's almost like a parallel scene to Prague there's trenches being uh, dug in Hyde Park gas masks are being handed out she then comes back to by the time she comes back to Prague it's looking so grim uh, Hitler is being so intransigent that war almost seems inevitable and the first thing she does, she, she arrives at the hotel and the desk clerk is like, what are you doing back here? <laughs> are you crazy? Kind of repeat Virginia's situation. And she finds two other friendly journalists in the hotel uh, who are not very pleased to see her because they think she'll be a liability if war breaks out. Um, one of them, John Whitaker says, you have to go and buy some sensible shoes because <laughs> if war breaks out, there's gonna be a lot of running around. And it's an incredibly tense two days as, uh, around what we now refer to the, you know, the peace negotiations at Munich, where everybody's debating, will Sudetenland be sacrificed in order to um, preserve the peace in the rest of Europe? Will Britain and France actually commit troops and help 
Czechoslovakia defend its territorial integrity. Uh, and she describes so well the, the absolute sense of just not knowing, not knowing what's going on, rumors flying around Prague. And then when finally it's the Munich peace deal is announced and Sudetenland has been sacrificed, the absolute despair of the mm -hmm. Prague. She's, she talks about the cry that comes up from the crowd who are gathered in the main square and saying it sounded like a wounded animal. Mm. And I think at that point, you know, there's no humor at all in her writing and you feel the absolute shame she has for the Western democracies and the absolute grief she feels for Prague, knowing that if Hitler takes Sudetenland, it will only be a matter of time before he moves in on the rest of Czechoslovakia. Yeah, it's an incredibly powerful moment. How dangerous was it for Virginia to be there? It sounds like such an obvious question, but I mean, when when she was going to places like Nuremberg or going to Prague at that time, just how safe was she? She wasn't accredited to any army, so she wouldn't have been protected by the Geneva Convention. On the other hand, there'd been no formal direct declaration of war between Germany and Britain, so she was not an enemy. The danger to her at that point would simply have come from getting caught up in a firefight. I mean, yeah. you know, the dangers of being in a war zone. And then obviously had war broken out at that point, the dangers of then, the difficulties of then getting home. Mm. If, uh, if she had no military resources to help to transport her back home, if borders had started closing and she didn't have the correct papers. That was actually going to be my next question is that she, We've discussed that she has this amazing talent for being kind of absolutely everywhere at any given time and also with almost certainly the most kind of interesting, important person you could be with in that moment. She was traveling around Europe so much and it sounds like such a basic question, but I was kind of fascinated to know how she was traveling around. How does she, she talks at one point, I think about getting into a plane with some French soldiers and flying into um, Berlin, and it's actually a there's that's the plane is spying. It's taking photographs, um, but they've been you know they've uh, they've pretended that she's a passenger. They've used her to as a passenger to kind of hide what their real intent. So she's kind of getting around Europe in all of these incredibly high risk ways. C Christina, could you talk a bit about that traveling around Europe and? Yeah, all of that, the kind she, of logistical side of it, I guess. <laughs> does seem to have this astonishing ability, which I must admit I read with some envy of anywhere she went running into somebody who happened to have a, a vehicle or a plane to get her to exactly where she wanted to go to. Uh, I hate to say this, but it, I don't suppose it's coincidence that, uh, I mean, she's described, somebody described her as looking like Lauren Bacall, I think that, that probably helped. Um, but yeah, she, I mean, she was clearly fearless because she, you know, was a chaotic and she was driving into places where she had no idea in Czechoslovakia whether they were going to go around a corner and, and drive straight into, you know, uh, a, a column of Nazi soldiers. Um, mm. She almost had to create her own network when she was out there so that she wasn't totally alone. Well, she clearly did have uh, an incredible network of of people. I mean, you know, that's one of the great fascinations of her that everywhere she went, she seemed to run into key players and get invited to, to dinners or, or lunches with them. And 
Yeah. But just just to add to what Christine was saying, I think she also had an incredibly generous budget from the Sunday Times <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, I mean, she did. Uh, certainly when if there was a wonderful hotel available she would be in it and they they do seem to have coughed up for her you know if she said I want to go somewhere they would seem to have sign off on all her expenses. Hello it's Artemis. For some time we've been working with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd and we've been telling you about his fascinating colorization work. Well recently Jordan has launched his new project It's a website called Unseen Histories, which showcases a broad range of fascinating historical material. You can read feature-length pieces there about female fashion in the Victorian era, or beautifully illustrated extracts from books like Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. For those of you who have enjoyed Jordan's colourisation work in the past, there's a full range of remastered photographs from the archives of the Library of Congress. It's history for our times. Do have a look for yourself at unseenhistories.com. That leads us on really nicely, as Christina said, to our our third scene. Christina, would you like to tell us where we are for our final scene in 1938? Yeah, so this is um, back in London after she's come back from Czechoslovakia, very angry and upset, as Judith described. Well, first, actually, she goes to a ball at the Ritz um, and sees everybody dancing, um, all the sort of hoi polloi of London, including the Prime Minister. Then she gets invited to a a small dinner um, where Neville Chamberlain was guest of honour. And of course, she ends up sitting next to him over coffee. And he wants to hear about what people thought in Prague and uh, I guess she really bent his ear of what she thought of of what he had done because he had gone and um, signed the, the Munich agreement that Hitler should have Sudetenland in exchange for this promise that Germany wouldn't uh, demand any other land in in Europe, and um, and so they had this rather tense conversation. Judith, would you like yeah, to? Yeah, I mean, but it's also typical of Virginia. I mean, I think Chamberlain said something like, "Did you notice any bad feeling against the British in Prague <laughs> after they'd just been sold down the river by Chamberlain?" And she is, on the one hand, absolutely infuriated by him and she says she thinks of all those that terrible crowd in the city old city square wailing their despair over you know the the agreement and she thinks also of the Czech soldiers that she's spoken to who said to her we could all have helped you fight this war by the time you come to fight this war we'll no longer be a nation you know that's two million men that could have supported Britain And she does tell Chamberlain this, but what's interesting about Virginia is that although her opinions are pretty strong at this point, she also knows the value of letting somebody talk. So she lets Chamberlain witter on about how when he was in Munich, everybody greeted him as a great maker of peace, how even the SS had cheered him. She says how she thinks, how he thinks that Hitler's actually losing his grasp on power. He said he seemed a very odd fellow in my 
last meetings with him, you know, very excitable. <laughs> it's always wonderful comparing her and Gellhorn, Martha Gellhorn, who's an absolute kind of firecracker and so intransigent in her opinions. And always, and actually came to regard Virginia as rather compromised, you know, because she wasn't so vehement. While Virginia's letting Chamberlain talk, Gellhorn's writing to H.G. Wells saying, you know, what a man, you know, such a weasel. Why doesn't someone shoot him? <laughs> These conversations she has, you know, she's clearly not taking notes. She's mm. just listening. And even if there's some degree of embellishment, I mean, she must have had the most amazing memory. I mean, I guess, because you know, there they all are. She's written this down two, three years later. Word for word, it feels like. Mm. It's an amazing gift she had. Yeah, I presume she, I mean, as soon as she got back. Yeah, right, yeah, um, I know. Uh, but, but, but that power of recall, you know, it was part of her greatness as a writer that everything, it feels so immediate on the page, mm. you know, including all these conversations. But she was clearly quite, you know, astonished that he just could have such little understanding of what was happening. And she talks about, you know, his arrogance and vanity. And I guess that's something, you know, we see repeated again and again, that the leaders that are taking us into war um, often just seem to have so little sense of, what's actually going on in the ground and also making the same mistakes over and over again. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Christina, um, about what it is like um, to interview a politician or to interview somebody kind of involved in the decision making process, you know, going from being on the ground and seeing that aspect of war and then having a conversation with someone who's making you know as as Virginia literally did talking to people in Czechoslovakia and then sitting down and having a conversation with Chamberlain this extraordinary kind of breadth of perspective um yeah yeah well it, it's fascinating and uh, you know it is difficult to because I suppose if you've been in the middle of it and seeing people losing everything and being betrayed and, and being killed that you feel very angry about it and it's hard not to uh to say something but you know it's important to hear the point of view of the people that are actually leading the countries at the time so I had one experience where I really couldn't <laughs> keep my opinion to myself, which was after the war in Iraq. I think many of us were so angry at that and how, you know, it was based on a lie that I then interviewed some years later Donald Rumsfeld, who had been Secretary of Defence and one of the, <laughs> the people most leading the move to, to go into Iraq and topple Saddam Hussein. Um, and his memoir had just come out and I went to interview him and it was a similar kind of thing in a way that he was talking so clearly, you know, by then this was some years on everybody, 100,000 people had died in Iraq, you know, everybody knew it was a mistake, but he still was unapologetic. And actually, it was a completely useless interview because instead of just getting him to speak, I became quite aggressive to him about what had happened and so we sort of had an argument and I walked out of that interview thinking I don't know what I'm going to write because actually 
I just had sat there and argued with his man rather than, and then I listened to an interview that he did with Fox News, which had a very different point of view. Um, and it was a much better interview because, you know, he just spoke. And so they got much more from him than I had. I would say that was probably the worst interview I ever did in my life. Um, um, and it really was because I was just too invested. So I think it was interesting for Virginia too, because so many of the uh, of her contacts were with the ruling classes, with the upper classes, and she was, in a way, always playing that game of knowing that they were the really useful, powerful people that would help her get to where she wanted to be, and yet increasingly becoming more and more critical of them. Um, and I guess that's that's. That's a really tricky thing when you're, as Christina says, when you're writing about war and politics is, is, how, is how you retain a sense of integrity about yourself. Like a lot of correspondents, you know, she'd, she'd find herself in situations where her first instinct was maybe not even to report, but actually to help, you know, children that she saw hungry in Italy or something, or you know, when she was in Prague, just around the time of the Munich deal, there was an old man begging for her help to get him out of Prague. He'd been in a German concentration camp for two years. And I think for her, she found, she frequently found that tug between doing the right thing as a human being, you know, whether it's helping people or holding politicians to account, or doing the pragmatic thing and getting the story, keeping people on your side being efficient mm. you know, I, I imagine that's nothing has changed in that dilemma for journalists now no absolutely and um that's why it's um it's such a pleasure to have Christina with us as well to kind of be able to draw those comparisons and things it's so interesting before we kind of head back to the present I was wondering if we could speak a bit about what happens to Virginia later on in her life obviously we know what happens after 1938 politically <laughs> Christina or, or Judith would you like to tell um, the listeners a bit about what Virginia's later life is like well that's one of the, the things that I find a bit odd and maybe Judith could shed light on this because having had you know all this really intense experience in the Spanish Civil War in the the run-up to the Second World War and the early part of it she then stops she writes a book after the war she marries um, Aidan Crawley who became an MP goes and lives in the country on a farm <laughs> um, has children doesn't stop working altogether because she uh, understand works in the farm and then also writes biographies um, quite successfully and, um, and histories but doesn't go back to reporting at all and I find that quite difficult because somebody who seems like a kindred spirit who's very you know fascinated by the story and to just stop after really not many years of doing it to um, is difficult for me to understand. Surely you would have been curious to go back to these places and see what had happened. And Well, she, I mean, she did try uh, to carry on reporting. Um, she wanted to be in North, Northern France when Hitler invaded. But at that point, because the war office had such strict rules about 
women near the front lines, she was blocked. Uh, she did report heroically from Finland during the Russian invasion of 39 and 40, where again, she wasn't having to deal with war office regulations. Christina says she comes back, she reports on the Blitz. Uh, well, she, she tried to get to Poland, but <laughs> by the time she got a visa, she said the war, the Polish war was over. She said, I never knew a country could fall so fast that you'd never be able to get to it in time. Then she, uh, she does eventually end up in London and reports on the Blitz and then writes this book very much uh, because she feels so strongly that America needs to be drawn into the war. So looking for trouble is, is, is a kind of war propaganda book. You know, it ends with a very Churchillian kind of call for American to take its, up its arms to fight for, for the world's freedom. But she does go back to journalism. I mean, she's out in North Africa for a couple of months reporting on the desert war uh, according to Nigel Nicholson, who was a friend of the family. I mean, still getting into horrifying scrapes. You know, they're, they're in a tiny town in New Tunisia, which is being bombed, and Virginia's out there taking photographs of the airplanes to go with her story rather than being dragged off to cover. And she's out in Italy, too, in the fighting, in the Allied attempt to take back Italy from the Germans. So she does do war reporting, but two things happen. Firstly, she gets a job in the American embassy, which uh, rather hilariously, uh, when the Americans join the war, there's this terrible kind of social and cultural divide where the, the English can't understand who these Yankee GIs are with their cigarettes and their nylons and their cheap perfume. And she has to write se a series of briefings for the American embassy that will explain the British to the Americans and the Americans to the British. But then what happens is she's out, when she's out in Italy again, actually meeting with Martha Gellhorn, she falls ill and she's sent home. At that point, that's when she decides to give up war reporting for good. She and Martha wrote a play together uh, called Love Goes to Press, in which they, they write about their experiences in Italy as female war correspondents. And it's full of hilarious uh, satire on the egos of male journalists and the irritating ways of the British and American PROs, who are the guys that try and police the press. And in that play, her character says, you know, I'm actually tired. I'm tired of sleeping on hard grounds. I'm tired of being frustrated. I'm even getting tired of being shot at. And I think by the time the war's over and her fiance, Aidan, comes back, she's had enough. She's exhausted and devotes herself, as Christina says, to her husband's political career, to her three children, and to writing and traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, and, has a, and of all the women in my book who I wrote about, I mean, I think she has the best experiences post-war, actually. And Do you think, because she, some of the others, well, obviously Martha Gellhorn eventually committed suicide, but others had a lot of problems with PTSD because of some of the things that they had seen. Was that something that affected her, do you know? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's interesting that her daughter Harriet said that she never really talked much about the war, but I think that was a generational thing as much as a personal thing. I think the fact that Virginia 
never went into the concentration camps. She wasn't in Germany during that final, those final dreadful months, you know, when Germany was decimated and then the camps were discovered. Uh, I think she was spared the most harrowing sights were the ones that probably sent the others over the edge. Well, um, to end on a, a hopeful note, maybe, I would love to ask about what influence you think Virginia's had on her career or perhaps the other female war correspondents that Judith writes about are very similar to Virginia. What influence have they had on the kind of development of like women reporters and perhaps even on, on you, Christina, personally, when you have written the forward to um, Virginia's memoir? Um, what does her kind of career and her achievements mean to you as a fellow foreign correspondent? I mean, were tremendous. They, they were trailblazers if it wasn't for people like Virginia and Lee Miller and uh, Martha Gellhorn. You know, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing today. I look around, I was just recently in Afghanistan after the fall of the Taliban. I look around the hotel, there were more female correspondents than the male. And, you know, that's something unthinkable in, in, in there their time and you know we have we still complain about <laughs> misogynistic editors and press officers sometimes but you know for the most part we don't have those kind of barriers at all that they they faced so yeah we owe them a debt I think it's interesting that um whereas when the war broke out as I said the British absolutely had a, a an absolute prohibition against women going to the front and the Americans did too when they entered the war. By the end there were 200 female journalists accredited to the Allied armies. I mean many of them didn't go to the front line but they were still writing about war and yeah the fact that that generation pushed through that barrier so forcibly um, I mean it didn't make all the difficulties go away apparently. I mean it wasn't really until the 80s and 90s, I think, that um, what Christina now sees as this confident kind of cadre of female journalists really kind of pushed through. But they they did change things. Yeah, It's interesting because, you know, um, like I said, I actually had never heard of Virginia, right? And, um, and a lot of these women have become only known their stories to us in recent years so Anne Sebert wrote about um, some of the women um, covering the second world war I think her book was in the 1990s and then um, Judith writing now the reissue of Virginia's memoir it's sort of I think that Martha Gellhorn's story was much more known and you can't help wondering is that because she was married to Hemingway and mm. uh, rather than because of what she actually did and I mean frankly reading Virginia uh, her stuff to me is much more powerful than the Martha Gellhorn her descriptive writing although Martha Gellhorn you know had a very strong point of view 
Virginia's descriptive writing is amazing. And going back to what Judith said about the, the Nuremberg rallies, I that her description of Nuremberg rallies is the best description I've ever read of them. Writing, writing my own book, it was an absolute joy to have this memoir as one of my primary sources, because obviously when you're when you're writing uh, as a biographer, if if you have wonderful quotes to use and, and writing of the caliber of Virginia's, you know, obviously it raises the level of your own book by mm. miles. So it was significant that this memoir I could read over and over again and I could still discover new things in it. Mm. Yeah, it's it's extraordinary and it was a wonderful read. I'm so happy that I got to read it for this for this conversation. Before we head metaphorically back into the present, you are allowed within the Travels Through Time universe to bring a memento with you from 1938. I feel like Virginia would have so many kind of glamorous things. Maybe, um, Christina, you could tell us first if you have a memento you'd like to bring back from 1938. <laughs> I think it has to be the heels, doesn't it? I mean, the idea of like <laughs> tripping around all these war zones in high heels just... That's to me, that's one of the most Im impressive things about her, actually. Yeah, that's completely what I was thinking. I felt like that was a, such a, had to be a certified memento. But um, Judith, what about you? Well, Christina's taken the heels, so I, I don't feel we can then undress her and I can take back every little <laughs> bit of clothing. I guess if I was going for a much more frightening memento, uh, at the very end of... 1938 she went back to Berlin just to see what the mood was like post Munich and all around the city there were posted up all the the traditional new year poster that the government posted up and that year the new year poster for the coming year was simply an image of a helmeted German soldier with a bayonet and the inscription 1939. Mm. And I think that for her was, you know, if there was any doubt in her mind that Britain wouldn't be at war in the next few months, that completely dispelled it. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That's a wonderful, well, it's not wonderful, but that's a very powerful image. Well, Christina Lamb and Judith Mackerel, thank you so much for joining us on Travels Through Time. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation a lot. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Judith McCrell and Christina Lamb about 1938 and the trailblazing female war correspondent, Virginia Coles. I really hope you enjoyed this special episode. Please do check out our website, tttpodcast.com, to explore more episodes from this time, including one I recorded with the MP Chris Bryant on 1939. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.